we need to change the system. And, and the reason that I get to that is because the work I do now has nothing to do with gender equity per se, but what I find is that I'm all about changing systems. I'm all about looking at things and saying, this isn't working. However this is structured is leaving all of these other people out of the equation and how can we change the system to bring more people in. Community Good, the podcast that shares powerful lessons to help you navigate the life you want. I'm your host, Marnie Andes. In this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Lynn Gangone, a nationally known TEDx speaker on gender equality and women's advancement, who joined me to share her thoughts on women in leadership, which led us down a really interesting path of discussing the importance of voting and education and how those are intimately tied to one another, as well as how we all have a role in changing the systems that aren't currently serving us all. And then there was so much more. And now my conversation with Lynn Gandone. Lynn, you and I have known each other for quite some time now, and I just can't thank you enough for finally joining me as I kick off a podcast. And just having you as a guest is just exciting for me. Well, it's exciting as always to be with you. I was thrilled when you asked me to write the forward for your book. And, you know, that's what women do for one another, right? We support right. one another. We lift one another up. So, Marnie, you know, you've always been a favorite of mine, and I'm just glad to be here today. Well, I love that. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing that. I, you know, I um, would love to just jump right in. And, you know, part of what I think we're going to get into for you to set the stage for the audience, I think is really important here. And, you know, in 2014, your TED Talk, Shatter the Ice, I absolutely love. And, and yet part of it is just like the it's the scratching the surface of mm -hmm. it. So I'd love for you just to set the stage. What was the talk for anyone who hasn't seen it, the essence of it? If you could get into that, that would be fantastic. I thought maybe you'd do a pun and call it the tip of the iceberg, you know, shattering the ice and I'm all so of that. Close. So <laughs> close to doing it. But see, I gave it to you. Look at that. <clears throat> Thank you. So let me let me talk about the TED talk. It was a phenomenal and scary moment as you know as any talk like that would be and it was based on research that first was conducted by an organization called the White House Project which released a report on benchmarking women's leadership in the United States and it was the first report of its kind where at the time it took I believe it was 10 sectors and showed that in none of the sectors were women in any significant percentage of leadership. Marie Wilson was the visionary behind the benchmarking women's leadership study. She um, often talks about like 30% as a tipping point for women's leadership inside of organizations. That's when there's more than one woman in the boardroom, one more than one woman in the C-suite. Um, so Marie started that. She started the White House Project, and she was the impetus behind the Benchmarking Women's Leadership Study. As the White House Project morphed, they were looking at a college or university that would share their values that might consider doing a second iteration of the study. And so they found Colorado Women's College and we did the second iteration of the study. So the TED Talk is based on benchmarking women's leadership. And it, what the talk ultimately does is it takes some very clear cut examples of how women, even in education, had not reached that or had barely reached that 30% tipping point talked about how even in fields where women hadn't received that tipping point, interestingly, they had the bulk of awards in that industry. They had the bulk of recognition in that industry, and no one knew that at the time. 
how the world is typically predicated on, you know, even research is predicated on the male body. And so there was one example about Ambien, right, where there was this way in which it was prescribed that actually was overprescribed for women because all the studies had been done on men. So it was one of those kinds of talks that had various examples, also called out, you know, how many times women are told, if only you do this, if only you do that, if only you had more confidence, if only you leaned in, if only you dress differently, if only you, right? Then, like, somehow that's the key to unlock the corner office. Well, we know it's not, and it's not our fault, right? I mean, so so where I'm getting to with that is that ultimately the talk was about systems change. Ultimately, the talk was about taking stock of the fact that we were operating, and this is pre-pandemic, right, 2014, we operated in antiquated work systems that didn't take the whole of who we are, be that be us women, be us moms or dads, right? That the system of work was designed at a time when there was a male breadwinner, a female who stayed at the home, and we hadn't really changed much since then. So how could we expect anything to be different? And I closed the talk with an example of playgrounds in Vienna, Austria, because architects, city architects looked at the playgrounds and they couldn't figure out why boys were using the playgrounds and girls weren't. And then they did a whole city redesign, not just the playgrounds, but entrances to mass transit, for example. They put in ramps instead of stairs. So people not only in wheelchairs, but people with strollers could could access mass transit much more effectively. And they found that if they changed the playgrounds, the system of the playgrounds, the design of the playgrounds, that boys stayed and more girls came. And so my point was, we need to change the system. And, and the reason that I get to that is because the work I do now has nothing to do with gender equity per se. But what I find is that I'm all about changing systems. I'm all about looking at things and saying, this isn't working. However, this is structured is leaving all of these other people out of the equation. And how can we change the system to bring more people in? So I hope that summarized the talk well enough. Oh, well, it was a great summary. And there's so many places. I mean, even so many places I would love to go. And but before I even take us into some of those directions that I'm reflecting on, that was pre-pandemic. You talked about that. Mm -hmm. Where are we at now? I mean, take yourself, you just sure. sort of recapped it for us. Like, okay, so some of the points that you're making, have we made progress? Where are we at? Well, as far as women are concerned, as always, it's a mixed bag. Um, what we saw during the pandemic is because of the requirements, right? When everything shut down, who is going to take care of the children? Well, you know, historically, stereotypically, however you want to phrase it, the major responsibility for childcare still remains with women. And so we saw the workforce numbers of women shrink dramatically. I mean, shrink to nearly pre-1970 levels. So that wasn't great. Now, what was great was that we found ways to change how we work. And, you know, for example, the organization that I lead, we went remote in March of 2020. And what we've discovered is that as a national organization, it's okay if we stay remote. It's okay if we recruit Nationally, it's okay if we have a small office in Washington, D.C., where we do a lot of our public policy work out of, but we can stay remote. And it's made the world of difference, especially for the women who work in my organization, because they can flex. They can say, you know, one of my high performers, you know, has a daughter who just started kindergarten, and I expect that she gets to pick her up you know, bring her to school and she still does amazing work. 
that we don't have to be bound by those old models. We are seeing, however, that there's a now a push to go back into the office. And I am always amazed at what we want to qualify and quantify as normal, back to normal. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of remote work at this point. And I do think it can satisfy a lot of our needs, particularly for men and women who have families and family responsibilities. So I think the pandemic is still very much a mixed bag. Women are starting to return to the workforce, but of course, remote work, if I may add, is a privilege of those of us who use our brains. Um, the people we rely on to serve us food in restaurants and to clean the toilets at the airport and to fly the planes. And I travel a lot, so I guess I'm using a lot of airport examples. But, you know, they don't, they can't be remote. And certainly we saw poor women really suffer and their children. Well, so it's interesting because I've been in healthcare for almost 10 years. And so when mm -hmm. you think about, you know, we, from a support aspect, have very much acclimated to being remote and found that people could perform better. And, and I found as leading some of my teams, I remember hearing well, not hearing, I don't remember hearing, I was witnessing it, people on my team who were losing weight and getting healthy and doing yes. all these things, they were like, had this not happened, I'm yep. not sure I would have been at this place. And then you flip it to the other side in our industry and you see people that, yeah, they, well, they need to see patients now. Yes, we had virtual patient care and we had other things, but now that we've gone back, you've, you're seeing people in the clinics. I mean, I go to my own doctor, who's also my colleague right now. You know, obviously I see them in the office. I think, I think about the flip side though, of even the remote aspect. So go back to you and I being remote mm -hmm. and what that has done for us. But in some cases, I think about how there's been this extra pressure, if you will, on women having to balance it even more, which by the way, that question, when somebody asked me like, how do you balance it all? I'm like, well, that's the wrong question because we don't. So let's just stop right there. I but know. I mean, I think about that. It's like, it's almost at times I look at it and go, is this a hindrance on women? Because now we're in it all day long. Well, I think it can be a hindrance on everyone because, you know, I joke around, I have two laptops, two iPads, two phones. And, you know, it used to be back in the day, you could like go on a cruise and you wouldn't get a signal. <laughs> and so you had to be out of the office, right? But now we have to contain ourselves by not always looking at our phones. I'm on a podcast, so you can't see me holding up my phone. But it's, you talk about endemic, I mean, it's always there. So how we can create boundaries. And, and, and I think that part of what is important, you know, as a positional leader, so I'm the president, right? As a positional leader, I have to set the tone for what I expect from my team. So I don't email them typically on a Saturday or a Sunday. There's this cute little function called Boomerang that you can actually use to send the email first thing Monday morning. Um, I encourage people to take time and take vacation. I try not to call people too early or too late. Now I can see people are on because of how the technology works. And if I choose to stay on, that's my prerogative because that's why I earn the big bucks. But I don't expect the same thing of the people on my team. And so I think the positional leader has to also be clear about what those boundaries are and what the expectations are and provide some level of flexibility so that you're not always on. Right. Well, I mean, a positional leader, I mean, you're setting the stage for setting boundaries, which is what you're talking about. And I could not agree more. I mean, you're setting the tone, the expectations for your team. And you can see the other side of that, someone doing the opposite of what that is, what that creates for the team. 
what when you think about positional leadership in how we change the systems, mm-hmm. I mean, this was just, you know, setting boundaries, but I think about, again, we still have more men in president CEO roles. Mm-hmm. You're a female leader in that role, setting the tone. I mean, I think people could look at this and go, well, she's a female leader setting the tone. So that's, this makes sense. But now what do I do? I'm working for an organization where the majority of the C-level jobs are all men. How does that organization system, how does that get infiltrated, influenced, whatever word you want to take to describe it? How, how does that start to change? So I'm going to say a couple of different things about that. You know, first of all, one of the things that I've learned and I use this phrase a lot, gender doesn't necessitate politics. If there's anything that I've seen over the past nearly 10 years is that there are some men out there who I would work with or for candidly over some women. I I mean, I do think it's a misnomer that women come with this secret sauce that somehow creates a different kind of leader. Yes, I mean, I think we're socialized differently. Yes, I think that we have the potential to lead differently if we're willing to take the risk to do that. And I think men pretty much are socialized to lead in a particular way, right? So we know we have all of that, but there are always ways in which there may be some men who are actually doing a great job better than some women, right? So that's what I'll, you know, I I look at what's happening now across the country. I mean, we haven't even gotten to politics yet, but what's happening in the country around you know, women's health care and the right to access um, abortion. Um, yeah. It, it always amazes me when I look at how gendered some of that conversation is. So, you know, so I'll, I'll say I'll say that to start. I, I, I'm not always a big adherent of women get it better. I'm just not. Um, the second thing I think is that organizational culture and organizational systems, even for those of us who are women leading in those systems, we're we're dealing in a system that's fundamentally structured and, and designed for men, right? So men are always going to be more comfortable, just like, you know, they can wear the same suit the whole week and change their shirt and tie. And we're worried about whether or not it's business casual or professional or whether or not I wear flats or heels. I mean, I even said yesterday to someone who shall remain nameless as she, you know, took off her very comfortable and very attractive flats to put on a pair of heels. I'm like, I don't do it anymore. Just don't do it anymore. You know, I, 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 I'm not, I watch guys work in comfort and still look professional. And I think we can work in comfort and still look professional. So, you know, but I'm also gotten to the point where I'm in my mid sixties and I'm just like, here I am. I will, I will look fashionable. I will always wear my statement necklace. I will do those things that distinguish me, but I'm not going to put myself into stilettos anymore, which I used to do. Well, (laughs) hey, yeah, I mean, (laughs) Right. So, so I mean, so, so yes, I mean, I think that there are cultures, there are cultures like law firms, there are cultures like, uh, I don't know, probably some of the trades and technology industry leaders, I mean, that are much more steeped in kind of that white male way of being in the world. And it is difficult to be the other, whoever the other is, right? I mean, it's not just about being female. It's about being black. It's about being Latino or Latina. It's about being Asian. It's about being, you know, gay or lesbian. It's about, you know, whatever, whenever you're the other inside of a system that is predominated by a majority, you've got to figure out how to navigate that system and what, and what part of you is willing to compromise or not. I mean, my black Sisters will call it code switching, right? Women do it all the time. We code switch all the time. Blacks do it all the time because they're trying to figure out how to be successful in a white environment. Um, Should I wear my, you know, should I wear my hair long and 
Should I, you know, put my, should I wrap my dreadlocks? Right. Um, should I straighten my hair? Because that looks more quote unquote professional. I mean, I did that for years. I just stopped doing it. I remember when I was consulting, I many times, um, and this was gosh, what, 12 years ago when I was doing consulting full-time, I would get brought in for some very, you know, specific things. But as we, you know, would start to look at the organization, I'd realize, gosh, there's a technology component here. There's actually mm -hmm. a lot of like business strategy going on here. And I remember when the discussion started to switch into that, I would find myself more and more in rooms full of men. Yes. And so I started definitely dressing differently. I'm already a tall person or I'm shrinking now, of course, but you know, <laughs> I, <laughs> at 5'11", I was still throwing on the tallest shoes I could find, but it was with a business suit, pants suit, those yeah. kinds of things, because there was a little bit of a, when I have to kind of look like a man, but at the same time, I wanted to give the sense that I'm just good enough. I'm just as good to be here type right. thing, right? So right. code switching, I can see that piece of it, but you said something, you you said something in specifically I want to get into, which was that you're not doing it anymore and talking about being in your mid sixties. And I think about women who are younger, who are in yes. their late twenties, they're just starting out and, and, and what can they start doing? Cause I'm always trying to think back, how could have I maybe figured this out 10 years earlier it's instead so of like hard. where I'm at going like, you know, head to four, you know, hand to forehead going, what the heck was I thinking? So I guess I want you to dig into that is, I mean, what, what is the message to them? Well, you heard me say it's so hard. I mean, I watch younger women today and on the one hand, they can have confidence and assurance of everything that came before them and kind of walk in and say, you know, I deserve to be here, right? There isn't even a question. And and at the same time, there are kind of all these different messages that at least I observe in society about how younger women should look and dress and be. And in many ways, a lot of them don't adhere to what we would have considered the standard, right? I think that for all the work that we've done, younger women still face the complicated choices we faced. They just do. Yeah. And, and that to me is difficult because I do wish that we could have broken down even more of the expectations of appearance and the like, um, and that we could have created more equanimity, right? Um, we are seeing women, younger women's starting salaries starting to increase. You know, I, uh, the gaps that exist in pay have been somewhat mitigated in the younger generation. That's something we worked hard for. I, I think that there's still a lot of peer pressure to conform, whatever that conformity is. And yet we talk about all these young people who are willing to say, hey, you know, I'm not going to work for the promotion. I'm going to work because I want my life to be a particular way. And maybe in that way, we've had some success. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel that. And I, I feel that personally where, you know, I, I my wish for younger women, you know, starting a career is to be in a place where I am now. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying necessarily level. I mean, that would be fantastic, but I'm, you know, the, the mindset of, you know, the work that I'm passionate about, the, I'm clear on the work that I'm good at the work mm -hmm. where I want to put time and energy, but I'm also really clear of the time that I have to put toward myself and how incredibly valuable that is. I mean, I think yeah. that's something that I, I don't, 
I don't know if the younger generations are there yet. And I'm not saying like enlightenment, but you know, you and I are both active, Mm -hmm. you know, we still don't, I don't still don't know if we follow each other on Peloton, but we probably need to, you know, cause then we could <laughs> try to compete on the bike. I don't, I don't know, know if I'm ready to compete with you, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, I see. I listen, you're, you're, you're doing really good. So, but, but I think about that where there's, I still see some younger women that I'm coaching, mentoring and I think there's still a little bit of like, I got to just sort of work myself to get to that next thing instead of, you know, having the opportunity to care for themselves. And so I wonder, you know, again, as, as much as we want them to have, to not have to work that crazy, crazy amount to Mm -hmm. get to this level, is that still what they do in fact have to do? Well, it's still a world that is, it's still a world where women's competence is questioned. I mean, I always think about it this way. My God, women can menstruate every month, bear children, go through menopause and, you know, not miss a day. We should be running the world. Right. Right. (laughs) But, you know, the reality is, is that we are always proving ourselves. We're always in a situation where we are having to, to work harder again when you're not in the majority, you, you, the, the strive factor becomes exponentially greater. The thing that I think is challenging for younger women is that they get to a certain point where they feel that equanimity. And then all of a sudden it's gone. Now, I, I will like I, I will tell you the the women I know in their late twenties and early thirties who are just shocked by the Supreme Court decision on choice. Like never in a million years did they even know that that was negotiable. You know, you talk to athletes. I mean, you talk about. I mean, in your book, I mean, we talk about shooting hoops. Right. Most young women grew up. Title nine was a given. It was a given. And. You know, I remember saying to my um, my trainer, who happens to be a former division one soccer player. The day after the Supreme Court decision, I walked in and I said. Life has now changed for half of the people in this gym. And, you know, and, and, you know, she was shocked. And so there are these moments, right, where, I mean, there's this quote that says, if, if the Supreme Court has never had to make a a decision about essentially who you are or how you live your life, that's privilege. You know, we pay equity, right? Right to choose, civil rights, LGBTQ rights. I mean, all of these things have been part and parcel of either state or federal policy or judicial cases where someone has said, it's okay to be who you are. So when you come into a world where who you are can be legislated or end up in a judicial decision, like how do you... You know, so so you think about younger women. We've given them so much, and I don't mean that in a condescending way. I mean, it was the work that needed to be done. And yet it's still so fragile. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there are a lot of them who will work and strive and who will wake up one day and go, I didn't think I didn't think that could happen to me or, you know whatever the case may be. I, I don't mean, I, I'm not a pessimist, right? I'm an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I, I I just, because I'm always dissecting systems and thinking about where do we have points of leverage and how do we work with anyone 
for whom their lives have had to be legislated on how to be part and parcel of the full life that I believe this country can offer us. And that's, that's the goal. Well, and that's what I would love to get into. One, I will say that having Roe versus Wade two years before I was even born, I was one of those women that was like, I, it, it never even occurred to me that this, it, it was almost like it happened so quickly mm-hmm. and, and it, I don't think it wasn't because I wasn't listening. It was because I, I didn't see that as a role I still had to play. It was, well, no, we're on to other things, right? Like, thank you. Thank you. What was paved and we're still trying to do other things. So I could, I could see that. And to your point, what do we leverage? I mean, that's what I'd love to get into as well, which is, I mean, what do, what can we do as a community? Because this is to the point, I mean, we can talk one-on-one. We can, you know, I've even recently, you know, been part of groups that come together and have conversation. Mm-hmm. What can we do? What are, you know, what can be done? Those kinds of things. And, but I, I would love to hear from you is like, what action can we take individually what action can we take as a community? What are those levers that we can pull? Someone told me a story about, I think it was, I'll say it was either Mississippi or Louisiana. I'm sorry, I don't remember which state. And on, you know, as part of a, a referendum, there were there were two things on the, there were two things. One was reproductive rights and one was voting rights. And the reproductive rights referendum in whatever way it was positive for women ended up being positive. And the voting rights ended up being negative. And this person said to me, the mistake that the choice movement made is they didn't understand the inextricable link between reproductive rights and voting rights. And in my opinion, everything stems on the right to vote, everything. Not only the right to vote, but the capacity to vote, you know. So for example, you know, we both live in Colorado. Colorado has an exceptional mail ballot system. I mean, I moved here in 2007. I've always voted by mail. I'm a registered independent. I get to look at, you know, both slates and make a decision on which slate I want to vote on. It's not like Chicago. I can't vote twice. You know, I can't vote Republican and Democrat. It works. Somehow we have, you know, I mean, the Voting Rights Act in Congress wasn't, you know, wasn't renewed, was defeated. And now we have state legislatures that want to call into question how people vote, where people can vote. So yeah, we'll put a ballot box out there, but it's 50 miles from where you live, but it's in the same county. So to me, voting in this country is sacrosanct. And not only do we have to protect the right, but we have to do everything we can to get people to the polls, to understand that their vote absolutely counts. And if there isn't anything that we've learned in the past presidential elections, remember, you know, George W. Bush and Donald Trump did not win the popular vote. Now, Bush won it second time around, but the first time around, he didn't. And We've had this funny thing called an electoral college, right? That's decided on those presidencies. Those kinds of things discourage people from voting too. So we just got to get the vote out. And we've got to think about the system that we have and whether or not the electoral college system works. We've also got to look at the fact that the way our Congress is structured means that oddly, states like California that have a tremendous number of people in states like North Dakota that don't end up with equanimity because of how we're structured from a senatorial perspective. 
right? Like literally we could have a whole program in this country where we took people from population centers and put them into other states and we might get some equanimity, but right now we don't. We actually have in this country right now, minority rule. And I'm not talking about black minority. So I think voting rights, I think voting, I think understanding the United States system of, and it is a liberal democracy, not liberal in the sense that we use that term, right, with left or right, but right. it's a liberal democracy. And, you know, because of the work I do, I would also say we've got to absolutely support educating every single child because it's the education systems in this country that guarantee our democracy because you cannot have a democracy if you don't have people who know how to think critically, who know how to understand systems, right? And what we know right now is that public education and even higher education is under attack and unvalued, right? So to me, this is another system. So when you say, what can I do? I say, focus on voting, focus on understanding the system, focus on getting all of our kids educated, regardless of race, regardless of zip code. Because education in this country is under attack. It just is, and there's a link there's a link between what's happening now and the voting and the voting rights and everything we are experiencing in this country right now. And you know what I see too, which is a huge point. And I really appreciate you walking through that because I'd had a conversation. It's probably been a few months ago. It had to have been shortly after the Supreme court ruling to reverse. And I remember she saying to me, you know, I'm just, you know, I, I, I'm not supportive of what they did, but I just, I don't know. I just haven't been able to keep up with stuff and I'm just, you know, I'm just so tired. I'm kind of backing away. And I was like thinking to myself, it's the silent group that doesn't agree with what's happening, but yet aren't taking that action. And so I, you know, and I hear you see that link of like, it does matter that you vote. It does matter that you understand what's happening. It does matter that you get educated so that you understand what it is that if you decide not to go vote, what, what you're actually leaving up to other people. So I, I see it, but I, I think about that silent Mm -hmm. group. Mm Mm-hmm. There's someone, I was just at a meeting in New Jersey and the dean at one of the universities in New Jersey said, quote unquote, paralysis is privilege. And, you know, that that it really isn't an option. And And I think those of us who believe in this country deeply and believe in our democratic society deeply, we're exhausted. Mm-hmm. We're exhausted. It's, it's, I was on the plane last night and I'll watch, I was, I saw through the, the crack in the street, a news network that shall remain unnamed. And it felt like a train wreck. Like I just had to keep looking at it because I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I thought, oh my God, I need to know this. I need Mm -hmm. to know what's being said about education in this country, even if it is, I'm Shaking my head, thinking, oh, my God, this isn't true. Oh, my God, this isn't true. So we can't, I mean, I'm exhausted. Damn. I mean, I I work at an association that supports creating teachers. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And retaining teachers. And teachers are, God, they're having a tough time right now. But it's not an option. Giving up isn't an option. Every time I want to move out of the country, you know, my spouse says to me, you can't, you must stay. (laughs) You have to keep doing this. (laughs) You do. Well, so here's, so here's an interesting, because I do want to get into the education piece of this. Um, What point is my energy valuable educating others or is it a lost cause? And I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. I was with a group of women. 
few weeks ago. We were downtown Denver. Mm -hmm. And there was a number of things going on, as there always is downtown around the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And in particular, there was a a woman's rights march. Ah. And we knew that because of the signs that were coming out and so forth. Great. Actually, I wish I would have known about that. I probably would have said, hey, catch you later. Need to go over here. One of the women had said, I, it's not that I want to take everything away, but this is what she said. I'm tired of women talking about it when all they have to do is go get the plan B pill. This Mm. is how she had summarized Mm. what had happened. And where, I don't think this is uncommon. I think that there is a, you know, but I'm not saying that I agree that, right. I'm see, look at me. I'm being supportive. I'm saying they can do what they need to do, but they, they didn't need that. They didn't need that law in place. They didn't need those things in place. And I'm thinking to myself, where does one even begin to educate around that? So Mike, so, okay. That was a whole lot of information to get to the point of who do we target And I mean, targeting by meaning, how do we educate people that are even at the place where they're willing to hear it and think logically about it? Those are, those are very tough moments. I, I very much believe in, well, so you're reminding me of another anecdote where, you know, we recently went on a hiking tour and we kept being somehow juxtaposed with a couple who were very conservative, fiscally conservative, socially conservative. And, you know, I have to admit, I said to myself, Lynn, you're on vacation. You do this every day. You don't have to try to change this woman's opinion today, right? So I so I just acknowledge that we have those moments where we say, teachable moment, I, I don't have enough energy to be the teacher today. Now, that being said, I do think that there are, there's space in those personal conversations, especially if you're with someone that you know, you know, to, to say, yeah, I hear you. It's it's great that the plan B pill is an option for us. Not an option for everyone. Um, you know, we've just had a we, we've had a fight for years in this country over health care. I mean, you're a healthcare professional, right? Um, we know that health care in the country is not equitably distributed. So not everyone can get that prescription. So let's think about those other women who don't have the access that we have to get in a car and drive. I mean, one of the things that's happening in Colorado right now, right, is we are surrounded by states with very restrictive abortion laws. And so what we're seeing in Colorado is women coming across the border. I mean, it makes it sound like we're another country, right? Coming across the border and 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 so Yes, you know, I can get in my nice car and I can take my credit card and pay for gas and if I needed to help someone do that, but not everyone has that luxury. So so it's those small moments where you have enough energy for the teachable moment and then it's the larger moments at work um, with, you know, however, or, or through organizing. Uh, you know, I'm sad I didn't know about that March either. You know, and part of the challenge mm-hmm. I think we have is that there are some groups that are very well-funded and have incredible communication channels, and there are others that don't. And so maybe some of what we do is figure out how to contribute to those communication channels in whatever way that is. I, I do think there are points of intersection that we can take, Marty, is my point, even if we have those moments of exhaustion. And then we allow ourselves that moment, you know, I give myself a bubble bath every night, it's how I chill right. with my tea. And then I get up the next day and, you know, I talk to the media about academic censorship and I talk to 
you know, people around the country about what I see happening in education. And then I take my bubble bath. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just literally, you have to like kind of keep going like that. It's a great metaphor for bubble baths. You know, there's, I just got a card that I put up in my little room that says, um, I would take a shower, but wine is easier to drink in the bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, and it does feel like that where, you know, I mean, those teachable moments are big. I also, you know, know that some of those are deeply ingrained beliefs mm -hmm. for some people. And, you know, when, as we transition into education, which I do want to talk about at least one of the things you did bring up, because I think this, the education piece, I mean, it is under attack. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I have a senior this year, we're, we're already assuming we're, he's going to college, we're going to, he's going to continue his education. That's not always the conversation in every household. It's becoming right. less of a conversation because people are wondering if the investment is worth it. That's right. The missing piece of that is to be able to think critically, to be able to, <laughs> my dad actually had always said, you know being the farmer who did have a bachelor's degree, mind you, but always said, you know, part of, part of undergrad is just making it through it. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's learning what you need to learn, learning how to survive, getting your stuff together. He probably said it a different way and, and figuring out how you're going to sort of operate in this world. And so I am just mortified to think of more and more people not having that kind of experience. Now I, Granted, I imagine there's a small portion of the population, if they don't do that, will still get some sort of experience because of the environment they're incredibly um, fortunate to be in. They've got a great community around them, so forth. But the vast majority where this is where they were learning those skills was at an institution like that. Where do we put our effort? I would love to hear more around, like, where are you focusing for people to see the value in education? So I'm going to back up for a minute because part of what's happened, I mean, part of what's happened over the past however many years with the proliferation of the internet, as an example, right? And again, you're in healthcare, so I'll use an example. What one of <laughs> one of my doctors who says to me, now, now just don't go to Dr. Google. <laughs> right? Don't go to Dr. Google. Now, what is that an example of? If it used to be that you went to either your, your school, your elementary school, your middle school, your high school, or you went to college, there was a way that people who were educators held expertise, right? They knew more than we did. And so we would go to these places and we would consult with these experts and we would learn. You don't need, there's been a loss of expertise in our society, a loss of respect, loss of expertise, respect for it, right? So we go to Dr. Google because maybe if we look it up online, we'll have the answer to why we're feeling this way as opposed to going to the doctor right? That could be an affordability thing. We're not going to go there right now, but just we're going to talk about expertise. So part of the challenge we have right now is that the institutions that used to respect, used to represent, and in fact, communicated knowledge, you don't need them anymore. You can find out. I mean, I am on, you know, Dr. Google, not for medical reasons, but for a whole host of reasons. You know, I have an interview coming up about the impact of academic censorship on not just K-12, but higher education and how that's particularly impacting colleges of education. So I'm on the web, right? I'm looking at this article and this article and this article and making sure that because I'm still considered an expert by at least this media outlet that I know what I'm saying. But I'm not having to go to college. I don't have to go to a library. I can sit at my home and Google or Yahoo or Bing or whatever I do out there. Um, that makes seeking knowledge and valuing knowledge 
suspect. We've seen it. All of a sudden, truth wasn't truth. Like, how could truth not be truth? I can't remember the term that used to be used. There was this really odd term about truth. But it, it's an example of how we just don't have faith in our educational institutions. We certainly don't have a lot of faith in higher education anymore. Uh, I think that's why we have to keep talking about why it's so important. And it doesn't mean that vocational education isn't important or community college education isn't important, right? But anything that we do that helps to stimulate someone's mind, their talent, their livelihood, I mean, all those things matter. And so we have to keep talking about it and we have to keep saying that it's important to invest in. Were you looking for fake news? That was the term. It's interesting when you say vocational, because I think that is um, maybe what's gone in a little bit with education too, is it's like, well, but, you know, they can go learn the skill and they don't have to go through, you know, the four-year degree. It's it's not even that. It's it's the fact that people are just rethinking it in general. Mm-hmm. But I, but I want to, I, I do love what you've even shared in, in a, from a summary standpoint here between the importance of voting and the importance of education. And I do know that there will be people listening that haven't given their children enough time, probably haven't given even their relationships, whether that be colleagues, a spouse, family, enough time to, to really talk about those things. I mean, I, I grew up in a home where it was just assumed we were going to vote. It was um, assumed we would go to college. It was, you know, I, I didn't have, it's hard, you know, I didn't have that experience where maybe no one was talking about it, but I think even more so now, even in potentially households of adults like myself who grew up in a similar way, maybe aren't spending the time. And I started to, to sort of, catch on to that with my, my older son, mm-hmm. because he's from a previous marriage, two different households, two different, very different political beliefs. And, you know, having a conversation with him is not so much to convince, that's not what I'm trying to do. But I did say what my job is, is to educate you and and make sure that you understand where to go seek information so that you can be informed Yes, to make your own decisions. And I, there is something there where I, w- I want people to hear that because you're saying that and I want people to hear that really it's about encouraging that. Encourage finding information and encourage, you know, understanding expertise and this and, and maybe, yeah. you know, giving yeah. yourself an opportunity to learn about it and not just say, well, that's not part of my beliefs. I don't need to know that, mm-hmm. or that's not how I operate. I don't need to hear that. It's okay. Help me understand wh- why that is that you believe that so that you could start to sort of break it down and help people make a educated decision. You've just, you've just summarized that beautifully and pointed out the incredible role that parents and families have in in this you know it's it's fascinating to me you know we have this kind of movement around the country now around parental rights and you know what you can and can learn in a k-12 classroom but ironically most of us in education want families deeply engaged we want parents if there are parents in the household you know we want them to be having these conversations with their children we want them to be challenging them and helping them think through things in the same way that you are encouraging your oldest son to do that. And the role of the family and the role of parents in all of this is so important, so important, because those are where the values are. And, you know, perhaps because we've put so much into what teachers have to do every day, you know, maybe, I mean, believe me, I'm sure that most teachers would, would just want to teach. They don't, they have, they have tons of needs that exist in their classrooms 
some of which because families are not engaged in their children's lives. And so I'm all for it. I think what you've said is right on. Well, thank you. I, I think it goes without saying that to the to back to the beginning of our conversation, the more we can encourage critical thinking, the more we can encourage education. If you want to talk about how do we start to change systems, mm-hmm. how do we help elevate women? I mean, I remember the last time we were at a probably a major fundraising event. It was when I had you speaking at our the nonprofit mm-hmm. project Aspire. I was pregnant at the time with oh, my yeah. youngest, and I kept thinking. Now we'd already found out this the sex of the baby, so I already knew it, he was a boy. And I kept, I was kind of like secretly wishing before that luncheon that he would be a girl because I, I I was so prepared for what I was going to say of what I was going to do for this this girl and how I was going to raise her. And then it hit me. I'm thinking about it wrong. Yeah, it isn't about how I'm raising a daughter. It's how we're raising the human beings. It's how yes. we're raising our boys and our girls to yes. understand this concept of inclusivity and yes. how do we think about, you know, changing the system there. And I mean, that could send us down a whole other. Oh, that's a whole path, other right? podcast. Right. But, <laughs> but the point, but you know, the fact that you have sons, right. Who aren't going to be the guys you described earlier in the podcast. Right. That's what I mean about gender doesn't necessitate politics. Right. It's about how we look at, inclusivity and care and compassion in ways that change things up for the better. And that happens when you raise children. But I'd love for you to share with the audience something that has impacted you and and what they might benefit from. You know, when you asked me that question earlier, I thought, oh my gosh, life lessons. Could someone give me a few? And what came to mind is the old adage, it's never too late. And, you know, my parents divorced when I was in graduate school. I'm the oldest of four. My parents divorced when I was in graduate school. And it's been so fascinating to watch my mom come into her own. You know, she's 87 now and she has this great little condo and she, I, I always think of Virginia Woolf's a room of her own, you know, it's exactly what she wants. It took her a long time to get there. And, you know, and for myself, you know, I didn't get married until I was 60 and I have a, my executive coach actually is younger than me. And she keeps saying to me, you always give me hope. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, you know, it's never too late. Right? right. And, and so, you know, I think the message is, it's just never too late. Whatever that thing is that you think you may want to do or the, or who you might want to be or how you might want to contribute to the world, it's just never too late. That'd be I my life that. lesson. I, it's incredible. I wish we I were shooting that. hoops together when we were talking about it. I know. That would be fun. <laughs> and we still need to do that. Um <laughs> There's, there's so much that you've written and published and your TED talk can be found online, but mm-hmm. is there a way that if somebody wanted to find out what you were up to or get in touch, you know, whatever you'd like to share with the audience would be fantastic. I do keep a presence on LinkedIn. You know, I like to keep my professional work up there. You know, I just, um, edited a book. Call, I, I have many interests <laughs> to laugh at this. So I just edited a book um, called uh, The College President's Handbook. It's about, uh, it's an edited book for people who want to consider being a college or university president. Um, I'm going to be writing an article with some colleagues who do some work in critical race theory about, you know, the impact of academic censorship on higher ed. Uh, and I don't know. I'm trying to think. I haven't done. I haven't done a te- another TED talk lately. Although I'm considering pitching one about changing systems of education because I do think that our education systems are pretty antiquated. Anyway, so I think my LinkedIn is Lynn M. Gangone, but that's how I stay in touch on social media, mostly through my professional platform. Lynn, thank you so much. 
I could just talk to you for hours and with you. And hopefully if this was a great experience and we've got something else that's on the hopper, we'd love to talk about that. You'll join me again on my podcast. Sure. I would love to, you know, I just, again, like I opened up the conversation today. I think the world of you love your book. Everyone should buy it. Um, (laughs) Wish I'd had a chance to meet your dad, but knowing his daughter has been a joy. So thank you very much for the invitation. 